And turn our Bibles to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation 11, beginning in verse 4 this morning, we will continue our look at the two witnesses today. title of the message is The Two Witnesses, part 2, as we will look into uh, more detail about who these uh, men will be in the future and what, what they're going to do and, and what their destination will be. Uh, last time we just kind of began to uh, introduce this topic of the two witnesses as we find ourselves here in the future part of Revelation chapter 11, talking about the tribulation and the second coming. We won't uh, take the time to go through all of that again like we did last week. Uh, we are here, chronologically speaking, in, in terms of a timeline anyway, this is uh, our biblical chronology beginning back here with creation. And uh, really, th we know that God is eternal. So this is just a, a timeline in terms of us, essentially, humanity. Because God existed way over here and way back here and all the way, I guess, going north, even past uh, the, the Mackinac Bridge up there on our timeline. It's forever. And he exists way over here, too, all the way out to the Pacific Ocean, headed that way. Uh, so at any rate, we find ourselves in this seven-year tribulation period a lot of the Bible is dedicated to this little tiny sliver of time. I mean, you think about seven years. Our church has been in existence for longer than seven years. Uh, at seven years is 2015, if you're keeping track. Seems like uh, last week or yesterday, 2015 is. That's how long this entire period is. But there's most of the book of Revelation is dedicated to talking about this period of time. The Old Testament has a lot to say uh, about this seven-year period because it's very critical in our understanding of the Bible and what God is doing in the world and how we can know for certain whether or not we are living in this period of time, the kingdom. There's a lot of confusion about that in the world today, uh, Christianity being no exception. You, you'll uh, go to any kind of sermon online or teaching, that kind of thing. You, chances are very good that you're going to hear something about the kingdom. And we're kingdom people, and we're living in the kingdom. We need to be doing kingdom things. And ah, that's all, that's not true. <laughs> For one thing, we are not living in the kingdom. We are people one day as believers in Christ, we will be living in the kingdom, but it's a future thing. How can we can say that with a hundred percent assurity? Not because of our church's doctrinal statement or something along those lines, but because the Bible says we stand on the Bible, like we just sang. The Bible says that a period of of turmoil uh, tribulation for a specific period of time, seven years, is going to happen before that 
kingdom comes. So don't be led astray that we are living in the kingdom today. Trust me, it's going to be so much better than it is today when we are actually in the kingdom. In terms of revelation, we find ourselves in this tribulation period, historically speaking, which of course is in the future. There will be a series of seal judgments that we saw in chapter 6 that will take place. Begins with peace, ends with an earthquake, and the unleashing of the trumpet judgments. We see this, the, these series of judgments, seals, trumpets, and bowls, describing the seven-year period, not re-teaching or re-describing the seven-year period, the seven-year period begins here with the first seal. It ends with the seventh bowl when Christ comes again. The, the idea of recapitulation is, which we don't believe, is that the seals describe the whole seven years, the trumpets describe the whole seven years, and then again with the bowls, we start over at the beginning and describe the whole thing again. That's... that's uh, a false viewpoint. We'll get more into that next week with the seventh trumpet. Rather, we see that the judgments are getting more and more severe as we go through the seals, trumpets, and bowls. Uh, and we've already seen six of the trumpet judgments, the uh, ecological disaster coming upon the earth, something like a volcano exploding or a meteor crashing into an ocean, destroying uh, ships and turning the sea to blood. We've seen the fresh water affected. We've seen more signs in the skies with the fourth trumpet unleashing of uh, demons from the abyss to afflict people for five months uh, during the fifth trumpet judgment. And then the sixth trumpet judgment, we see another massive war, probably a demonic army that is unleashed upon the earth to kill a third of mankind. So we're already down to less than half of the population of the earth at this point in the tribulation from where we began. Last time we saw this these two witnesses who are beginning to be described, who have this uh, mission, really, during the tribulation period, where they are going to be prophets for God, essentially. And they're going, we're going to look into some of the things that they do today. But it began with a measuring of the temple, if you'll remember. And that temple we saw is one that will exist in the future. It's not there today, but it will when this seven-year tribulation period happens. There has to be a temple in existence. And uh, John is kind of given this measuring rod to go around and, and measure the temple in Jerusalem. We saw he wasn't just getting the dimensions of it, but essentially is finding out with this, through this measuring to see who is faithful to God and who is not faithful to God. And those who faithfully worship the God of the universe, of course, are the ones who are faithful, those who are outside, which is, uh, they're given the, the, 
the title of the nations, those who are separate from God, are those who are found to be unfaithful. They are outside of the temple. They are excluded from the temple. We saw that this is kind of getting back to, in this tribulation period, really kind of the way it was when Jesus himself was on the earth, that his, his mission primarily was to the Israelite people. That's not to say that, that Gentiles didn't believe in Jesus. Yes, they did. Uh, we see Roman soldiers believing in him and, and others in the gospel accounts. But it's primarily directed toward Israel, and that's the way it's going to be in the tribulation period also. Uh, but this is a, a literal temple that's going to exist in a literal city of Jerusalem that's going to be tread down, it says in the text there, beginning in, in chapter 11, for three and a half years. Probably this is describing the second half of the tribulation period. And we saw last time how non-dispensationalists will think that this is one of the hardest parts of the entire Bible to interpret. Uh, and that really is because they have to kind of dream up meaning that fits into this and agrees with their overall scheme of the Bible. Whereas if you're a dispensationalist, you just read the words on the page. You see, oh, nothing like this has ever happened before. Certainly God's word is true. So it must be in the future. And oh, two witnesses. Well, is that uh, Martin Luther and... Paul? Or is that just Christians in general? Is it the Eastern Church and the Western Church? Or is it just two men who are witnesses in the future, like it says on the page? That's, that's dispensationalism in a nutshell. Just reading the words on the page, what do they say? Uh, does it make sense when you read it plainly? Then that's what it's describing and is describing two witnesses, two people who will witness for him uh, in the future. Probably, probably very close to this second half of the tribulation period that is divided, uh, begins with the first seal, abomination of desolation, the, the Antichrist setting himself up to be worshipped in, in this same temple is the midpoint of the tribulation. The tribulation ends with the seventh bowl and Jesus Christ coming again to rule and reign upon the earth. So today we'll look more at these two witnesses. We'll see their description, kind of some of the things that they do, the fact that they are going to die. We'll look at their death and then we'll finally look at their destiny. So we begin with their description. Notice Revelation 11 and verse 4, it says, These are the two, speaking of the two witnesses, of course, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying and they will and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire so you'll notice something that is missing 
from this language here. Uh, well, we'll get to it more. There, you don't see the word like or as anywhere in these verses. So keep that in mind as we as we go here. Notice first off that they that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that be, stand before the Lord of the earth. So here we get the opportunity first off in our literal understanding of the text to apply the idea if the plain sense makes sense seek no other sense. So when we read these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Okay, uh, we've already seen that these are going to be two men, two witnesses. They're going to witness for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth. Now we see these are the two olive trees. So are they two literal olive trees and two lampstands at the same time? Obviously not. So obviously that is symbolic language. It must be, because it doesn't make any sense to see them as two people prophesying for 1260 days dressed in sackcloth and a tree and a lampstand all at the same time. So the one that doesn't make plain sense clearly is figurative language. And we, in Zechariah chapter 4, we see a similar use of this same kind of language in that book that is looking forward to the rebuilding of the temple at that point anyways the book of Zechariah Old Testament book is looking forward to the rebuilding of the temple and it describes two lampstands with oil coming from the trees and that oil in Zechariah is symbolic of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of Joseph, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the one who is kind of in charge of the Jewish people. They were the two, uh, the, the lampstands there in Zechariah chapter 4. And they have this infusion of the oil from the trees because without, and that is symbolic of the Holy Spirit, without the Holy Spirit working for the people of Israel at that time, they would have no hope in being successful against their enemies and rebuilding the temple. Zechariah 4, 6 says, Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might nor by power, but, my, my, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And, this, and the very same thing is true for us. We cannot do anything in our own strength, in our own power, our own uh, ideas and wisdom, if we are trying to accomplish anything for the Lord, it must be done by faith and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, notice, so this, so this language here is the same kind of thing for these two witnesses. They are lampstands shining for the Lord in Jerusalem during this tribulation period. They are infused with the oil from the olive trees. They're doing this under the power of the Holy Spirit. And notice also that there are two of them, two witnesses, two olive trees, two lampstands. And that's very symbolic of the fact that, they're, that 
the Lord requires two witnesses for legal action. And we see that throughout the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17, uh, 6 for one. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. There must be two. Uh, Jesus Christ himself in Matthew eighteen sixteen says something similar, but if he does not listen to you, speaking of an, uh, of an errant brother, if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every act may be confirmed. Paul to Timothy says the same thing about uh, elders in the church. We don't just take uh, hearsay or one person's word for it. There ought to be at least two witnesses. Do not receive an accusation, he says, 1 Timothy 5.19. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Same kind of thing here. There's a measuring of the temple in Jerusalem. The faithful and the unfaithful are found out. And now we're going to have two witnesses to confirm this. We don't even have to take just the Lord's word for it. He's sending these two witnesses and they are both going to testify about who is faithful and who is not faithful and probably some of the consequences of this faithfulness or lack of it is going to be a part of their message. Now the question of who these two are is invariably raised, especially in dispensational circles. Uh, There are a few theories as to who these two men will be. Uh, One, not really that dispensationalists will not see these two as just the church in general, because that requires uh, wild speculation and uh, figurative, symbolically looking at this passage to see them as anything other than two literal people who will uh, witness. Completely relies on symbolism to see these two witnesses as something other than two people who will witness for the Lord. So some of those, uh, some of these ideas that you will come across as to who these are, again, this, this is not something to uh, really uh, ruin your Thanksgiving dinner over or Christmas dinner or something like that. We don't need to start a new church over whether or not we think it's Enoch and Elijah. That's uh, a, that. In fact, that was the early church opinion. When you look at people like Tertullian and, and uh, people very early on in church history, this is the opinion that most of them will have is that the two witnesses are Enoch and Elijah. Now, why in the world would they think that? Well, Enoch and Elijah are two people from the Bible who never experienced physical death. Enoch, you'll remember from the book of Genesis, he, was, he walked with the Lord and he was taken up uh, very early on. Uh, to be with the Lord. Elijah experienced something pretty similar to that. Uh, You'll remember a literal chariots of fire 
That's a great movie, by the way. Uh, (laughs) Chariots of fire came and took Elijah to heaven to be with the Lord. He never experienced physical death. And so people who will believe in the Enoch and Elijah theory will say, well, Hebrews tells us that every person has to die and then comes the judgment. Well, our scripture reading this morning kind of points to a whole generation of people who aren't going to die. What we find in the book of Hebrews is a, is a general statement of truth. Yeah, throughout history, the number of people who will not experience physical death is statistically insignificant, and therefore we can make a statement like we're, we're all going to uh, live, and then we're going to die, and then comes the judgment, with the exception of one generation of people. First Thessalonians 4.17, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, them being those who have already died, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we shall always be with the Lord. So Enoch and Elijah, well, it could be, but don't base it on the fact that, well, they didn't die and they have to die like we we'll see here in a bit that these two do die. And so that will satisfy that, that uh, one verse from Hebrews. They may be Enoch and Elijah. Uh, Enoch wasn't a Jew. However, there was no such thing as Jewish people uh, when Enoch lived. So that one's kind of on shaky, shaky ground. Next, a very frequent opinion on who these two are is they, well, they will be Moses and Elijah. Why? Because, well, there's even some, some like to debate whether or not Moses actually died. We see this uh, verse from Jude that speaks of this kind of uh, angelic battle over the body of Moses. And did he ever really die? It's not totally described. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Moses did physically die. Uh, Again, Elijah did not. He was taken to heaven. Furthermore, they created, they performed similar miracles to what we see here. Elijah didn't breathe fire out of his mouth to kill people. However, when he was praying, it did come down from heaven and destroyed the prophets of Baal. Moses did... Uh, some of the plagues involved water turning to blood and this, this kind of thing. So there is some similarity there. Furthermore, these two are visible at the Mount of Transfiguration there with Jesus. And so people, uh, Luke 9.30, the Mount of Transfiguration, when the, the Peter, James, and John see Jesus in, in his partially in his glory, Behold, two men were talking with him, and they were Moses and Elijah. So, you know, there's some, there's some evidence there. And some will point to Matthew 17, verses 10 through 13, and say, see, Elijah has to come before the Lord comes again to the earth. Matthew 17, 10 through 13. And this is in reference to a quote from the Old Testament, the the book of Malachi. 
if I'm not mistaken, if memory serves me correctly, the book of Malachi will say that Elijah is coming before the Lord comes. So what does that mean? Uh, Matthew 17, verse 10, and his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the son of man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. So some will try to use that passage as evidence that, oh, well, Elijah has to be one of them because it says there that Elijah has to come and he's going to restore all things. But then I would kind of point to that last part there. Elijah already did come according to that. And if you would have only believed the Jewish people would have believed that Jesus is the Messiah, then John the Baptist would have been Elijah. So, our, And some people thought that John the Baptist was kind of Elijah reincarnated or come back to the earth because he never, he never died. Uh, however, I, I, I am of the opinion that these two are not two people who've already lived to come back, but there are two future prophets who are very similar to Moses and Elijah, but they're not physically the same people. As evidenced by John the Baptist could have been Elijah indicating that it doesn't have to be physically the same person. It's somebody who is like him who is going to precede the Lord. So I would just kind of go with the boring that's a good that's a good biblical uh interpretive method. Go with the boring answer and you you don't really get into too much too much trouble. Two future people who are similar to or like Moses and Elijah are going to be these witnesses. Now what will they do? Notice here's where we get to use our plain sense makes sense seek no other sense. Uh uh moniker and look for figurative language here in verse five. And it says revelation 11 in verse five, if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. That's, that's pretty clear. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth and every plague as often as they desire. So if you're trying to make the two witnesses into the church or Martin Luther, okay, uh, we need a historical account of Martin Luther, maybe, okay, calling down fire on someone, not breathing it out and killing them. And there's no account of the church or Martin Luther or even the apostle Paul or James, like we uh, heard about last week, that, that there's one theologian from the 1800s who said, oh, without any question, the two witnesses are James and Paul. Well, Paul didn't breathe fire, neither did James. They didn't turn water to blood. Uh, and there's no indication that it didn't rain for three and a half years uh, during their, 
their lifetimes or their ministries. So they are literally breathing fire to kill their enemies. And, and those who want to symbolize that will turn to Jeremiah 5, 14, where it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, speaking to Jeremiah, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire in this people wood, and it will consume them. Notice the language there, making your words fire. That, that is symbolic language. Your words are becoming as fire and the people are going to be consumed by that. That's not what we see here. If anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Very, very graphically describing how they're going to deal with their enemies. They can literally stop the rain during their ministries. It doesn't mean necessarily that it isn't going to rain during the second half of the tribulation. However, if these two prophets, these two witnesses say that it isn't going to rain for some period of time during that three and a half years, it isn't going to rain. They can turn the waters to blood very much like Exodus chapter seven. They can bring any plague onto the people that they desire. Very, the, the Philistines had a reaction, 1 Samuel 4, 8, that they realized, oh, these are the people who just left Egypt and they're, they say their gods instead of the God can bring a, a lot of plagues onto people and they were very worried about that. The, the nations, the unbelieving people are going to be concerned over the testimony and the witness of these two witnesses because of the incredible things that they are going to do. But notice what happens to these two witnesses beginning in verse 7, their death. Revelation eleven seven says, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. These two are going to physically die, but notice when that happens. It happens after their mission is finished after they have accomplished everything that the Lord wants them to accomplish, then their lives will be taken from them. And the Lord doesn't spare this, this kind of a privilege to be protected until he's done with you for just special people. In fact, he does that for every one of us. So we are as even as physical beings, we are, we're, we're immortal until the Lord doesn't want us to be immortal. 
anymore. Paul was the same way. He desired very much to, to leave this earth and to go to heaven, but he knew that he had things that the Lord wanted him to accomplish. Philippians 1 and verse 21, is, Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to, de- to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. The same thing was true for these two witnesses. They probably very much wanted to leave this earth. Think about how bad it is now and how much worse it's going to be in the tribulation period, but they had they had a job to do until the Lord was done with them. And he has the same thing in mind for you. Luke nineteen seventeen, uh, the parable of the minas, if you'll remember, in that parable, the Lord gives uh, a certain amount of money to various people. He leaves, then he comes back to judge them. To the one that he gave 10 minas to, he said, to him, well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be an authority over 10 cities because that person was faithful in the things that the Lord had for him to do until the Lord was done with him and the things that he had to do. And he returned and rewarded him. The same is cr- true for Jesus Christ. He lived on this earth until he had finished everything that he had to do. And that event, the the finishing of the Lord's ministry happened while he was on the cross. John 19 and verse 30. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Tetelestai is that word for it is finished, just one word in the Greek. And, and we've talked about this before. It's in the perfect tense, a past tense action with ongoing consequences. The, the payment for the penalty of sin is completely finished on the cross of Christ. We do not have to, we cannot do anything to contribute to our salvation. It has been completely accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross. The debt has been paid. In fact, that term, tetelestai, was written on uh, Greek banknotes, if you will, uh, uh, loan papers. When it was paid off, they would write tetelestai across the top, or maybe they had a stamp. I'm not sure if they had stamps back then. They might have. Tetelestai, paid in full, complete, it's finished, it's done. You don't owe anything on this anymore. Uh, when you've paid off your house, it's finished. You don't keep paying, paying your mortgage after you've already paid it. That would be foolish and completely unnecessary. The debt is paid. Same is true for us in our salvation. The debt is paid. We simply trust in what Christ has already accomplished for us. So how do these two die after their mission is complete when they have finished 
their testimony. The beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. This is the Antichrist himself is the one who is being described here. Now, does he physically go and kill these two or or does he use some other method? I'm not really sure. It's not uh, described there in great detail, but we we know this because Revelation 13 describes this beast coming up out of the sea uh, and here using this language of the abyss. Uh, We'll get to Revelation 13 when we get there. Uh, I won't take the time to read all of those verses, but that's uh, who is being described there is this one who is going to kill the two witnesses. And where do they die? Is it... uh, it's not hard to to describe. We don't have to make something up. It's not uh, uh, Salt Lake City. We've been watching this. Uh, started watching this documentary about Mormons in Salt Lake City. Wow. Uh, the Salt Lake City isn't being described here. Uh, Nashville, Washington D.C. isn't being described. Uh, Rome anywhere other than Jerusalem. But it uses, here's another great example of symbolic language that is being used in verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, here it comes, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt. So does the, does the Bible contain spiritual language or allegorical language or even mystical language? Yes, it does. It absolutely does. And guess what? It tells you when it does, just like it does here in Revelation 13 and verse 8. So we can, we can all get our mysticism on here and, and, uh, and see, oh man, this is, this is great. We're really getting close to the Lord, which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt. Oh, but then it tells us what it is. We don't just insert our own thinking in there. We don't just turn off and tune in to the vibrations or something to come up with the answer of what the city is. It tells us where also their Lord was crucified. That's Jesus. He was crucified uh, in Jerusalem. And so they're using this mystical language, Sodom and Egypt, because if you'll remember, Israel is reborn, not in faith. They are not reborn with life. They are reborn dead. That's what Uh, Ezekiel 37 is all about. The dry bones come together and they they don't have any life. That's what we are witnessing today in the world. A a nation, Israel, that is a nation, but there's there's no spiritual life there until the Lord does something that we're going to get to here very shortly. So they so they use these terms Sodom and Egypt to describe the city of Jerusalem. That gives you an indication of the kind of place that Jerusalem is going to be in the tribulation period. And very unfortunately, they're pretty much on this road uh, today. You don't have to do a lot of research to know there's a lot of immorality in 
in Israel and Jerusalem today, uh, kind of like there is everywhere else in the world, unfortunately. So they are described as Sodom and Egypt here. Uh, it is Jerusalem, clearly, obviously symbolic language to describe Jerusalem. But why, why do these two die? Uh, verse 9 describes that. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. These people are crazed. They're not going to allow these two to, to be buried. They're going to let them lie in the streets. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. These people hate the message that these two witnesses have, so much so that they won't even bury them. They want to be reminded that these two are death, in fact, that they are dead. In fact, they will celebrate it by sending gifts to one another. And so uh, we see that these earth dwellers, they are referred to with this term, I think kind of uh, somewhat symbolically. Yes, of course, they dwell on the earth, but they, they are focused on the earth. Their whole world is the world and the earth. They are truly earth dwellers. We as believers in Christ should look at ourselves really as pilgrims. We're just, we're just passing through this place. This isn't our destiny. Our destiny should be focused on the Lord and heaven. These people want to exclude God and his principles completely, and they are totally and utterly focused on the world and self and we, on the other hand, should not live like that. That, as, as believers in Christ, we shouldn't be concerned with the things of this world. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be our overriding concern or our overwhelming concern. Uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew six twenty seven, he says, And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. These people, the earth dwellers, quote unquote, of revelation are completely focused on what they will eat. What will they drink? Uh, who they can marry, what sort of clothes literally should they wear? Should I wear uh, women's clothes or men's clothes? I, I don't know. It's up to me. I, I'll decide in why do you care? Uh, <laughs> that's, uh, that's a whole nother issue. They are very focused on that sort of thing. While they should be focused on the Lord, we certainly should be focused on the Lord, His Word, His 
principles and align our lives with what we find there. 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, notice this, the love of the Father is not in him. Oof. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away and also its lust, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. These earth dwellers hate the message of these two prophets so much so that they want them to die. And like has been mentioned, we see very similar things going on in the world today. People who want to kill Supreme Court justices because of their opinions on when life begins. That person needs to die. Uh, Innocent babies need to die. These people are crazed. We see it playing out here, even further along than it is uh, now in today's world. And we may wonder why people are doing these kinds of things. Why do, for example, why do feminists think that it's okay for men to compete against women in sports? That doesn't make any sense. That is a complete and utter contradiction of everything that feminism has supposedly ever been in favor of. Well, it's called, it's a principle that is called intersectionality. And so you can have any opinion, uh, whether it contradicts something else that you've always thought, because where these two principles intersect, well, we have to have agreement there. And feminists uh, have agreement with the transgender advocates in this one particular area. So uh, we're going to let that one slide because after all, What do they all have in common? They hate God. And they are against anything that is godly. So when you see uh, Muslims, for example, aligning with homosexuals in various areas, uh, in the Middle East, they'll throw them off of buildings. In America, they'll come together and, and because they hate Christianity and they hate God, so they'll set aside their differences in order to accomplish these kinds of things. Very contradictory in their understanding of the world. Why in the world would they do that? They hate God, just like these earth dwellers hate God, so much so that they will kill his prophets and allow them to lay in the streets for three days and send gifts to one another. However, some God has another trick up his sleeve. These two have a future destiny with the Lord. Notice verse 11 of Revelation 11. It says, but after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people who were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Notice that the breath of life 
came into these two. That's where all life comes from. We see that, uh, that the man, Adam, was given life, the breath of life from God given to him. Israel, the nation of Israel in Ezekiel 37.10, God breathes his life into the nation of Israel. One day that will happen. They will believe in Jesus as their Messiah. When he does that, he will come again and rescue them. Uh, another similar uh, example here, the apostles, we won't, there could be some controversy over that one. We won't go into it too much. Christ breathes on the apostles, tells them to receive his spirit. Uh, I would say that's not the beginning of the church when Jesus does that and they receive the spirit. It's kind of a symbolic thing that Jesus did for them. Uh, nevertheless, it is the breath of life coming from God to these two witnesses and they stand up on their feet alive after having laid in the streets for three and a half days, the world literally celebrating it. This is a miracle that cannot be attributed to anything other than God raising these people from the dead literally before the eyes of the world. And he tells them to come up here. This same exact language as what John experienced in Revelation 4.1. After the discussion of the churches and the, the letters to the churches, then John is told to come up here. Then the tribulation events are described, kind of setting a, a good timeline for us. Church, rapture, tribulation, period. They are taken up alive, just exactly the same way that we will be taken up alive. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17. I won't take the time to read that one. I will read 1 Corinthians 15, however, verse, beginning in verse 50. It says, Paul says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality. Then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In a, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we who are alive will uh, be changed, given a, an eternal body, changed and taken to heaven, taken to the Father's house, as Jesus said in John 14. Uh, verses 1 through 3, Jesus describes the rapture first for us. And this is going to happen uh, in the future at some point before the tribulation period begins. 
Uh, and that reminds us of our three tenses of salvation. Uh, we, our salvation is complete in Jesus Christ at the moment that we trust in him because he has accomplished it all for us. He has paid the penalty for sin. The instant that we believe in that, trust in that, we are given eternal life. Now we have this life to live, which we sometimes refer to as sanctification, walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting in the Lord and his word moment by moment, making sure our motives are correct. The things that we do are done for the Lord. We grow closer to him in our relationship, looking forward to the day of glorification where we will be raptured and taken uh, into the presence of the Lord and rescued from the presence of sin in our lives. These two witnesses are going to uh, experience something similar to that. The, the only parts of their lives that we know about are the three and a half years that they are witnesses for the Lord. Then they're going to die and then they're going to be raised again and taken to heaven. And the result after that is another earthquake. And oh, just 7,000 people die. Oh, by the way, we can add that to the tally. Verse 13, in that hour, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city, a tenth of Jerusalem will fall. 7,000 people will die in the earthquake. And the rest are terrified and gave glory to the, to the God of heaven. So uh, who are, who are the rest? Well, I, I guess I don't really know. I don't see unbelievers here giving glory to God. They, they are kind of uh, hardened. We see throughout the rest of revelation and we've already seen it that they, they are hardened against God. They know these things are happening because of him and they hate him and don't want to believe in him. Uh, I kind of see the rest as being the believing remnant that they see these things happening too, and they are terrified and they, however, give glory to the God of heaven. This is kind of similar to when Ananias and Sapphira died before the Lord slain in the spirit, as it's uh, been said, Acts chapter five, verse 11, as a result of that, they had great fear. Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. And they were motivated to follow the Lord even more closely. Probably the same thing is happening to the believers during this period of time in the future history. So, so what? What is, why do we care about two witnesses that will live in the future uh, whether they're Moses and Elijah or like Moses and Elijah, they're going to witness for the Lord. They're going to die and they're going to be taken to heaven. Well, so what? Boy, that's pretty similar to, to our lives as believers. And it ought to motivate us to live for the Lord. We can be comforted for one thing, knowing our future destiny is very similar to these two Witnesses, we can comfort one another in that. Like it says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 18, we don't have to be uh, 
overly concerned about believers who have already died. You know, oh, what's their destiny? Are they going to miss out on life with God? No, of course not. They're going to be raised first, actually, and taken to heaven before those who are still alive and remain. And then we too will be caught up. We can comfort one another with however bad it's getting here in America or however bad it's going to get in the future. We can comfort one another with the fact that one day we are going to be instantaneously brought before the Lord. Furthermore, we should be motivated to live for the Lord because of these truths. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. I left that verse off of that passage that talks about us being instantaneously in the twinkling of an eye changed and before the Lord. How should we then live? Our uh, critics of dispensationalism will like to say all that pre-tribulation rapture. It's just escapism. It just lets you think and do whatever you want. You know, you're just, you just think that you're going to be rescued. And so it's just party time. We can do whatever we want. Well, you may think that, but your thinking is completely contrary to the Bible because every time, and I mean every time, you read about the Lord's coming again for his people, you are encouraged to live for the Lord. You're not encouraged to do whatever you want. If that's what you think, you're just disregarding uh, very important parts of Scripture. These truths are meant to encourage you to be faithful. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty eight. Therefore, since you are going to be changed and raptured to be with the Lord, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain, in the Lord. These two witnesses were allowed to complete their mission. When the Lord was done with them, when they had accomplished everything that he wanted them to accomplish, they were allowed to be killed, but they were taken up to the Lord. And the same, very same thing is true for you. Therefore, be steadfast, be immovable, be firmly planted on the rock of the Lord's word. And one day, you, I, I assure you, based on the testimony of the Lord, if the word, if you do that, you will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And that should be all of our desires. Let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you so much for the book of Revelation and these incredible truths that we find here in your word. We thank you for this ancient text that is still so relevant to us today. And I just pray, Lord, that, you, that your word and the things that we find here would change us and mold us into the people that you want us to be. Help, help us to be faithful to you until you call us home to be with you. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you and he also will bring it to pass. And all God's people said, amen. amen.